Well, good morning. I'm Steve Coleman, a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And this morning, we're going to conclude the story of Joseph and our series on the book of Genesis by looking at Genesis 50. I don't know about you, I've really enjoyed our time going through Genesis. It's always a little bit sad to say goodbye to a book in the Bible. Uh, Speakers, you know, always have to study the passage, and um, then we get up and give it. And then often, three or four weeks later, we've forgotten everything we've said, but usually we remember something we've studied. So I hope you've picked up things out of what we said and that have been meaningful for you. Um, it's a tremendous part of God's Word. There's a comic on the screen, a uh, young guy talking to a pastor saying, I slept in church because I'm striving to be more like God, and on the seventh day he rested. <laughs> we know we all want to be more like God and have a life transformed by Him. He's at work doing just that in our lives. It's also important that we have an understanding of what specific attributes look like in action, characteristics that he wants us to have. You know, so we have the story of the Good Samaritan, which tells us about, shows us about what loving neighbor our neighbor looks like. We have the water from the rock, a story out of Genesis that, that gives us a very tangible way of understanding God's faithfulness to provide. Uh, and then in uh, 2 Corinthians, our class in chapter 8, uh, with the overflowing joy out of the Macedonian churches and the, advers- the adversity they were in. And in James 1, where it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We, we learn what joy, how joy needs to be present in the face of adversity if we have been transformed. Well, tucked away in our chapter today, which is primarily about the arrangements for two funerals. It's the next best thing to doing a chapter with a genealogy. Uh, But we see a great example of one of God's character traits that we don't talk about as often as we do others. Well, let's do just a bit of background. Genesis is moving toward its conclusion. And for the last several chapters, we've sort of been involved in that, chapters 47 through 50. This is God's last big dramatic move. He's moved the Israelites, this extended family, Uh, of 70 from the land he had promised them to live in Egypt. And that's where the book of Genesis leaves off. We'll pick up the story uh, a few hundred years later in the book of Exodus. But let's take a quick review of Genesis. We've covered a lot of ground. Genesis means origins. And this characterizes all the book. There's this newness to things, the beginning of things. Uh, In chapters 1 and 2, we have the creation God created a heaven and earth. We have the fall in chapter 3. God created heaven and earth, and man blew it. And then in 3.15, we have God giving the promise, the great promise that reverberates from here right through to the book of Revelation. So we have God created, humankind blew it, and God promised From that point on to the end of chapter 11, we have sort of the origins of the nations. Uh, In addition to genealogies, we have the accounts of the flood and the Tower of Babel. Uh, In chapter 12, there's a change in the book. A change. Abraham is called by God. 
and we have this section, 12 through 37, Abraham of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. The children of Israel, get it, the children of Jacob. You guys get that? Name change. So when we say the children of Israel, we're saying the children of Jacob, those 12 tribes. Uh, Children of Israel come center stage in chapter 38 with the story of Joseph. And as I said, we end the book, we have the nation of Israel in its infancy, but located in Egypt. Well, before we go any further, let's pray and then get into the text. We're grateful to be able to look into your word this morning. Give us clarity of mind and an openness to your spirit so that we can understand more about you and be changed. Take your word and put it into our hearts. Keep me out of the way of your message this morning. Thank you. We ask this in the name of your dear son. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. We finished chapter 49 last week with the death of Jacob. We begin today with Jacob's funeral. Genesis 50, beginning at verse 4. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes... Speak to Pharaoh for me, tell him my father made me swear an oath, and said, I'm about to die, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. Kind of, and kind of an uh, obvious statement. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near Jordan is called Abel Mizram. The word Abel is the Hebrew word for mourning, and Mizram the word for Egyptians. So mourning Egyptians, yeah, that's the field of mourning Egyptians. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. You know, Joseph made sure to fulfill Jacob's request to be buried in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Jacob, just like Joseph, had spent decades away from the land and longed for God's promises about the land to be fulfilled. Going back to the text, We saw in Genesis 47, it says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So from the time they moved Jacob and the rest of the family down to Egypt, there were 17 years in which he saw his children and grandchildren. Watching them grow and thrive in Egypt, I think Jacob wanted his death and burial to have a specific meaning, to be a reminder to the family of their roots in Abraham and Isaac and the promises of God, 
especially the promises about the land. I think his thinking went something like this. The good life here in Egypt has the potential with these young new generations to sort of dim in their mind God's calling, God's calling of our father Abraham and what God is planning to do. So after 17 years in Egypt, Jacob apparently determines that his death would be a critical opportunity to bring God's calling to the front of everyone's mind. I think we can see that reflected also in a couple of verses back in chapter 47. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do what you say, he said. Swear to me, Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. What would elicit worship? I think this was urgent, an urgent matter for Jacob. There was an insistence to ensure that his body would be taken back to the land God promised to him. Why this insistence? I think he wanted a demonstration to show his descendants so they would keep in mind where both their roots and their future lie, and that is in Canaan. Joseph understood Jacob's heart, and I think his response to this is telling. They were both on the same page, you know. Both Jacob and Joseph loved God from their youth. Both had siblings that wanted to kill them. Both had been exiled from their own homeland for decades. Both saw God work through their terrible circumstances to bring good to them and their families. Both received specific promises from God, and both looked forward to God's future promises being fulfilled. I can only imagine in those Egyptian evenings, uh, during those 17 years, uh, you know, Joseph uh, was taken out of the promised land as a young man, but I think he and his father had opportunities to talk and and Joseph could hear and understand much more clearly the stories that Jacob had to tell about how God dealt with him. And, uh, and Joseph could share with him the very specifics of how God took him from that caravan being sold into Egypt and so on and how God had worked things out. Uh, must have been great conversations. Well, Joseph honored Jacob's request in an unforgettable way, in a way that shows he got what Jacob wanted to have happen here. Joseph created an entourage that went to bury Jacob, and it was impressive. So impressive that the people living in the land took notice and renamed the place. Jacob asked for Joseph's kindness, and Joseph did everything he could to make it an event that not only Israel, but Egypt would remember for many years to come. And as David mentioned last week, Jacob got a funeral second only to what Pharaoh would have gotten. Moving forward the text. The big funeral caused Joseph's brothers to wonder if the reason that Joseph had not taken revenge on them for trying to kill him was that he did not want to bring grief to his father. So we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? And pays us back for all the wrongs 
we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came in to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You indeed, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers wondered if Joseph had forgiven them only because of their father. And that now, after 17 more years, he's free to pay them back. They were afraid Joseph had just been fattening them up for the kill. So the brothers made up a lie to try to guilt Joseph into not harming them. Your father said before he died, you should forgive us for what we did to you. Please forgive these servants of God. When he heard this, the Bible says Joseph wept. Why would he weep? Let me suggest to you that it was painful to Joseph to think that his brothers assumed he meant to do them harm, that he was so completely misunderstood. Let me tell you a story that might help with this a little. A woman, we'll call her Mary, has to leave her home every Tuesday and Friday at 3 p.m., to take her daughter Christy to a physical therapy session on the other side of Chicago. The late afternoon trips put them in the thick of commuter traffic and they don't return home until 7 p.m. Christy hates these therapy sessions, but they're doing wonders for her ability to walk with a normal gait. As Mary welcomes Christy into the car one Tuesday afternoon, Christy hisses at her, I'll never forget you for for doing this to me. Mary wanted to ask Christy, what it was specifically that she wouldn't forgive. The four-hour trips that Mary had to drive through heavy traffic? The vacation she and her husband Greg had given up so they could pay for these special therapies? The many nights Mary spent on the internet trying to find the best services to help Christy? Mary had exhausted herself to help Christy deal with her disabilities. And for that, Christy is stating that she will never forgive her mother? It's one thing to sacrifice for your child. It's another to have your child look at your sacrifice and act as though it was child abuse. We understand to be a parent is to be misunderstood. Even if we're not parents, when our family members, friends, and sometimes even strangers second-guess and question our motives, it can be one of the most frustrating human experiences we face. Joseph had to feel this frustration. All he wanted to do was good things for his family, including his brothers and their offspring. And here they were assuming he was still nursing a deep-seated grudge, that he was a guy who was that mean and that petty at heart. You can imagine the insult it seemed to be. Joseph might have been thinking, you were the ones that had murder in your hearts when I was sold into slavery. I've done nothing but forgive you and welcome you into my care in Egypt. 
I support you and I provide for you and I have been doing it for 17 years. And now you're accusing me of having the same murderous intent in my heart that you had? What an insult. That is the damaging nature of guilt. These brothers sinned and though they repented of those actions, they apparently didn't let go of the guilt. You see, that guilt warped their thinking and made it impossible for them to fully receive and understand a forgiveness and mercy and a love that Jacob had shown to them. Their warped thinking also made them unable to see most things clearly. Look at the way uh, Joseph responded to their insult. First, he spoke, he spoke the truth. Yes, they meant to destroy him, but God made it good. He redeemed that action, and Joseph accepted that good thing from God's hand, period. We know this because back in chapter 42, verses 8 and 9, we read, this is when they first came down to Egypt, and Joseph recognized them. The Bible says, but Joseph had recognized his brothers, although he did not recognize, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. I don't know how much Joseph thought about those dreams that he had of his brothers bowing down to him, the dreams that God gave him as a youth. But the Bible says when he saw them and recognized them, he remembered those dreams. He, the big picture snapped into place for him. He got it. He understood Secondly, he reassured them, telling them not to be afraid that he would take care of them. What a commitment to ungrateful people. Yeah, I'm still going to take care of you. Still going to protect you within the land of Egypt here. And then thirdly, and this is the one that blows my mind, he spoke kindly to them. I, I think I might have mustered up the oomph to take care of them anyway after this, but to be kind to them in the process, all too easy just to answer a little bit differently than kindly. But Joseph spoke kindly to them. Kindness in the face of warped thinking, unbelief, ignorance, and yes, this insult. You know, there's one final act of kindness by Joseph in this chapter. Verses 22 to 26, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at an age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. You know, Joseph put aside anything he might have wanted for himself in order to provide a symbol for his people that they could see and remember that God was going to deliver them. You see, 
Joseph remembered that one of the promises, one of the things God said to Abraham was that the people would be enslaved in a different country, but that he would bring them up from that country. I think the prophecy mentioned 430 years they would be in this foreign country. And Joseph knew that. He knew that was coming. And he knew those hard times of slavery were coming. And so for the benefit of those to come after, he gave these orders. That his body was to remain in Egypt, but when God comes and gets you, take my bones with you and bury them in the land. Hebrews 11, where it talks about these great men of faith, it says about Joseph, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He did that out of great faith in God, in God's promises. Comforting his people and giving them hope, uh, that's what Joseph was about. You know, this always reminds me of uh, the, the uh, communion service, the breaking of bread that we celebrate every month. Because it's so like Jesus. We read about the fact that Jesus, after the resurrection, he was taken back up into heaven. We read from a theological perspective, Paul, as he explains to us, look, he's up there, and he's the first fruit uh, of his brethren. Uh, we read in Hebrews that he went once for all to offer his blood as a sacrifice so that there's no more sacrifice for sin. And what did Jesus do before he left? did a similar thing of, that Joseph did. He set up a symbol, the symbol of the uh, bread and the, the grape juice, bread and the wine. And he said, for as often as you drink this cup, uh, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he come. I know I'm, I'm real good at remembering his death at the Lord's Supper. We, we also need to remember that that stands as a symbol to us. We do that because He is coming. Then we won't need to do that anymore. We'll be with Him. Joseph provided hope for the hard times. Slavery. But to sort of sum up, Joseph's kindness can be seen in three aspects. He uses power to remind the families of Israel of the importance of God's calling and promises by following Jacob's instructions and burying Jacob in the promised land to indicate that was the ultimate destination. He encouraged and mentored his brothers, spoke kindly to them by explaining and living out the truths of God's promises. He gave hope to the succeeding generations. In kindness, he set up a symbol of of the eventually fulfilled promise to encourage hope in the hard times to come. Kindness. It's an interesting thing. If you look up stories about kindness, you might get one like this from the Reader's Digest. A woman named Marilyn Atterbury from Spokane Valley, Washington, said she was driving home in a blizzard 
she says. I noticed a vehicle trailing close behind me. Suddenly, my tire blew. I pulled off the road, so did the other car. A man jumped out from behind the wheel and without hesitation changed the flat. I was going to get off two miles back, he said, but I didn't like the look of that tire. I know with my love for people, sometimes I have it on a statute of limitations. You know, I make a big effort to love, to do a loving thing, but when it's ignored, or worse, my motives are twisted and misunderstood, then I'm done. That's it, I mutter. I tried to do a nice thing, and you had to go mess it up. There are stories of kindness like this, the one from Reader's Digest that you see. They stand out because they involve caring acts to strangers, and that is a tremendous show of the grace of God that is built into the image of humanity. And they're wonderful things to do. Showing kindness to people we don't know is one thing, however. Being kind to people we know is extremely hard. I find it so. We don't have expectations of people who are strangers. There's no personal baggage to get in the way of being kind and showing that kind of mercy and grace. If we don't get all the way to that point, to do what Joseph did, we're short-circuiting what God's trying to do in building character in our lives, making us like Christ. To really reach out to other people's hearts and to reach our own hearts all the way down at the deep places, we really need to pair our love with kindness. We need to pair our grace with kindness. We need to pair mercy with kindness. You know, Micah 6.8, sort of a famous passage. I didn't realize, wouldn't have remembered that it included kindness. Do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Paul's pretty explicit about it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And then Timothy says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. If you want to serve God, if you want to participate in reaching people with love and grace, we always need to think about kindness as well. You know, it's just too easy. If you want to work on that, if you want God to see, to uh, improve kindness in your life, you just pick a person in life that annoys you the most. And then pray for them. Don't pray about them, pray for them, and identify ways to be kind. The thing about kindness is, it's what brings the healing touch of God, healing to you and healing to them. 